Welcome to View from the Pool. In this episode, it gives me great pleasure to welcome my former childhood neighbour, school friend, uni cohort and indeed work colleague, Richard Hewitt, MBE, who is now a co-founder of Thrive. So hello, Richard. Hello, Robin. How nice to see you again. Yeah, it's it's been a few years, I believe, even though we you live very close to our head office, don't you, in, in Nottingham? Uh, I'm reliably informed that I do. I haven't been there, but uh, I don't go anywhere these days, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll not ask you for your postcode, but yeah, you're you're like me, just sitting in the bubble and talking to people on on um, on Zoom, etc. I I thought it'd be good, first of all, you know, since we haven't talked for quite some time, uh, maybe you could tell me. You you know, I mentioned there that you're you're a co-founder co-founder of Thrive. Maybe you could just give me a bit of background about what, what's that all about? Uh, I'll try. Um, <laughs> it's like taking the slice off the top of a very big cake, um, but hopefully we'll get further down into the cake as we, as we speak. Yeah. But Thrive is uh, the organization that uh, I, I run alongside my partner. Um, and <laughs> I suppose if you, if, if you have to call it something, we're management consultants, but... I don't think we come across as the traditional type of consultancy. Um, mm. Thrive, um, and of course, uh, I should say that Thrive also has um, an, an arm called Kinworks, which is a community interest company. Uh, what we try and do is see things differently um, for organizations who feel as if they're a bit stuck. Um, and we try and reimagine, reconfigure, and revitalize organizations ideas and aspirations and ambitions and I guess we think we're different um, I suppose everybody thinks they're different but we think we're different because we're I guess not afraid to challenge what's going on around people um, we like to we like to dismantle the myth that people think organizations are organize, organizations are people um, and mm-hmm. we'll type the person that actually believes the management structures and, and all that sort of sort of stuff that flies around so so we've done quite a lot of work over the last 10 years with public sector private some private sector um third and community sectors we based ourselves mainly in scotland um and we've had a great time and we've worked with some fantastic people fair to say or is this a too general an, an analogy that it's a change management company would that be yeah is I that mean, too, too easy to say or t- is change- that too cliche Change management is a um, is a, a well hackneyed phrase. Um, mm. I did five years in local government when I left the military, and um, if you mention change and management together, people mm-hmm. kind of put the sign of the cross up to you because it yeah. it usually meant spend a lot of money and make things the same. Yeah. But <laughs> but actually, um, managing change is something that we all do all the time. Um, it's it's about how you try and bring change to the fore and tell people it's it's it, it is uncomfortable it will be a rough ride but there are ways to make it happen that, that make things better as opposed to you end up back in the same place i mean there's a great there's a great um saying about consultants that they um they, they take your watch from you and tell you the time sort of thing <laughs> and that's to a certain extent i think that's true because i hired these guys when i was in local government i hired the some of the big five and they came in and they did stuff and I looked at it and thought 
well, we knew that already. Yeah, but there I is a system. That. There is a system out there that works, mm-hmm. and it it feeds itself. And there's a lot of money rolling around in it. And I'm sure everybody does very well out of it. But but actually, after 20 years in the military doing stuff that that I did, uh, and then five years seeing what the system was like, I was ready to go out on on my own and and try and challenge that system. So, I guess we're a bit. We are a bit challenging for a lot of organisations that we work with, but that's what we like to do. And it, you know what? If people don't want to be challenged, then don't work with us. That's the way it goes. I, I like what you've just said, actually, because in in my industry, in, in uh, drowning detection, there's only four, four or five companies in the world. And we're very left field in our approach compared to all our competitors. So forget about everything else about the product or, or anything that it does. The difference between us and the rest is our approach is completely different in that we're all sort of ex-lifeguards, ex-leisure managers, and we see the lifeguards at the top of the pinnacle. All the other companies are technology companies who have found a niche and have squeezed it into lifeguarding. So even though the the, the end game is kind of the same, it's it's two different approaches on, on, on how we go about and, and utilize our product and train staff, etc. And just as you said at the very end, you know what? If you don't like what we do, go somewhere else. And that's yeah, me being polite. Don't buy it. Yeah. But yeah, and so, I, you know, and the stuff that the stuff that I do comes from right down into the background that we're going to talk about today. The stuff that Lynn does, my partner, it comes right back from her background as well. She's got a background in um, in the private sector, um, and she's done ten years with. Deloitte as a consultant so she knows that she knows that part of the map but we both bring together mainly my military stuff uh, and her um, private sector stuff we bring them together in in ways that I think um, that I think work quite well but it's like you say you know if you've if you've jumped into a freezing cold tidal swimming pool and pulled out a bloke called <laughs> Fat Rat who's just dislocated his shoulder, doing trying to do the butterfly which he knows he can't do, you know those are the sorts of experiences that start to mould you as a person. And I'm sure we're going to get into more of that. But yeah, that that will come into it. Well, maybe that's a, that's a good point to, to to go back to if you like. And, and I, I think you did your bronze medallion at the same time as me at Stramillis, wasn't it? No, uh, no, I, I, no. What did I do at Strand? I thought I did it at Jordanstown when the first year in Jordanstown, but it might have been Strand because those days are a bit of a blur. It was, it yeah, was well, rugby. for obvious reasons, it was rugby and beer mainly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I, I think I can help you with that um, chronological, chronological order because you started. Did you not? You went to um, Jordanstown after Strand-Mills. you left. After, was it straight after Stramalis? No, I did a year in Carrick Fergus. Yeah, um, in the, I was working in the, uh, the leisure centre the, lifeguarding. Lifeguards. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, so, that answers your question. So you yeah. must have done it at Queens. Yeah. At Queens PEC. Yeah. Exactly. Ah, it was Queens uh, PEC. It was. Yeah. It was indeed. Yeah. Because I, I remember. Uh, I don't know if you remember the, the lecture, Mick McCormick. That's right. The That's basketball right. guy, American yeah. accent, but came yeah. from Belfast. Yeah. Um, Mick made me do the bronze medallion he dragged me to that because i had no interest in it and you know that's another one of those little tick ticks in your life you go flip thank god he um, did that because a fantastic that, yeah the bronze medallion was the only ever badge i could have sewn onto my <laughs> swimming trunks you know i didn't do any other kind of qualifications <laughs> you know i was talking to somebody about that last week and one of these as well that you know, likewise and i've still got my original bronze medallion you know found it in the loft the other day and I went, oh 
you know, because I didn't ever do 10 meters, 25 meters. And we'll talk about whitehead swimming pool shortly, but you know, you didn't, the, what was 25 meters in whitehead that swimming pool? Medallion, that is <laughs> as precious to me in my life as the old MBE, you know, because oh. it, it, it was the start <laughs> of the trail, I guess. I did listen. I shared a stage one time. It was this lad anyway? I was in the same stage with him, and he was introduced about his his bronze medal at the Olympic Games. And I said, "Well, the only bronze medal I ever got was the bronze RLSS bronze medallion." So that, that that's how only, high I held it. That was the only that was the only podium podiuming you and I did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we went to uni together, and then you took what, with hindsight, to me was the best decision you ever did. You know, you you bailed out, uh, and I described. Stram Millis, or the, let's call it the CDT department, um, back in the day when we were there, was having a, a Blue Peter agenda. <laughs> where, where, and this person laughed at that, where we'd come from a really good uh, background with old Clinty there, uh, Harry McClintock, uh, and, and the light and the skills, the woodworking skills, etc., that nobody has anymore. And mm. then we went into this environment where we were making stuff for plastic bottles. Mm. Now, uh, so you bailed out for whatever reason and, and went on. Well, I, well, well I, I, so just <laughs> stop you there. Um, yeah, I did bail out, and um, that's that's what it that's what it was. That's what it felt like. That's what it looked like. But but now, and this and it hasn't just come to me in a blinding flash of revelation. Um, I, I arrived at Stramelis as as a emotionally as a child really you know because mm, yeah. you know we'd had a we had we'd had the best time at school i mean i you know, i know that you and i had the same experience at school um being ducked on our first day a number of times you with that ridiculously large book book bag oh, antler that, bag that you had put you away from being stoned by the interboys and all but anyway so you know our 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 days at school were halcyon days and we we did the rugby and all that sort of thing I went to Stramillis thinking it's going to be just like school. It wasn't. But I, I don't think I was emotionally ready to do much at that stage, to be honest. Yeah. So maybe it was a good thing that I I was confronted by Stramillis and I thought, oh, this is serious. And, and they're, going to, they're going to make me be a teacher. Yeah. You know, and I went and did my teaching practice in Glenwood yeah. Primary up the Shankill <laughs> Road. And that was the best six weeks of the first year because – the head took me in at the end of that, and uh, he said to me, um, this was after my last, I've got to tell you, do we have time to talk about things like oh, this? Listen, we can talk about whatever we want. So my last lesson in Glenwood Primary, it was P6 I was teaching, was an art lesson, um, a music and art. We, I did a wee kind of groovy segue music from and music art. into art. Yep. But guess what? He, well, you probably would guess. The <laughs> music side was playing them, Dare Doom from the Tain. By horse lips, right? Horse lips, yep. So I did a wee history lesson on the Irish mythology, and it was the Tain, right, in the Shankle. So you know, and then I said, right now I want you to do a, your picture of the cattle raid at Cooley, which the Tain is based on. Yep. You know, the the um, Cahulin and the men of Ulster ra- raiding the cattle and yep. taking away the Charolais and all that, whatever it was. I'm probably getting all this wrong, but anyway, so. They all did it, and a wee fella at the back stuck his hand up and said, Sir, I'm finished. And I says, Bring it up, let's have a look. And he brought it up, and it was a brilliant drawing. And there was like lots of blood and lots of slaughter. Cahulan and the men of Ulster all had Linfield scarves tied to their wrists. <laughs> and Queen Maeve and the men of Con, or wherever it was, had Cliftonville scarves tied to their wrists. Brilliant. And, brilliant. I, you know, the rest of the lesson was like, There wasn't any football in those days. I know it's hard to believe. 
But I went into the head's office in Glenwood <laughs> and he knew, he'd heard from Stran, you know, it was a small word that I was planning to leave at the end of the year. And he says, look, he says, Richard, you, if you think about staying or if you ever think about teaching, you would be, a, you know, you would really love it and, and education would love you. And that, that's the only thing I really remember being influential to me in the whole time at Strand. Mm-hmm. That head teacher saying that to me, and it, it kind of made me think, I can't do things. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't ready to do much then, and so but, I left. Well, I only lasted an extra year than you. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I was very, very disillusioned, I, I remember, because of the, the Blue Peter agenda, and I loved the teaching practice. We were the, we were the dropout twins, weren't we? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, boys from Whitehead, you know, you couldn't flip and write it. And I, mean, I was in Avenil, and... It was such an eye opener because, again, you know, we 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 had such a protected childhood in the school we Absolutely. were at, and, and you know, bullying. What's that? You know, it, it, there was none of that, and um, we we all looked after each other's back, and it it, it was great fun. Uh, and then you go and you teach in a little primary school in Avonil on the you, in that flashpoint area in Belfast, and you see the kids wearing the same clothes for six weeks, mm. you know, never mm. washing and all the rest of it. Yeah. And they all knew somebody who's, oh, well, why didn't you get your dad to do that? He can't, he's in prison. You know, well, what yeah. about your brother? Well, he's doing time as well. And what about such and such? Oh, my aunt, she was done for, and it's it just, I was gobsmacked. Mm. I didn't, I'd never come across something like well, that. So. Yeah, yeah. And it reinforces the fact that we were, of course we were, we were, we were dripping behind the ears, but we were very naive in, in the ways of the world. And I think, you know, I think all young people, you know, at eighteen, people at eighteen or nineteen now, I think, well, that's it. I'm a, I'm an adult now. I'm, I can drive. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I was first confronted with young, young people who were going through very, very disadvantaged lifestyles in those days, and it was like jaw dropping because mm. we were sheltered from that very much. So, yeah. so you know, it, it takes a while for you the scales just fall away from your eyes, and in, in at that age, I think. And and that brings me on to the lifeguarding because, you know, as fate would have it, I got, you know, you went to Carrick Fergus Leisure Centre. I did. Um, as a lifeguard after Stranmillis, that's correct, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So when you left that job in Carrick Fergus, I got your job because I had done my additional wasted year. Yes. <laughs> and um, had a ball, I have to say. I mean, I don't remember much about it, but it was a good year. Um, and then... In, into your job at Carrick Fergus Leisure Centre, so I, I'd, fo- I'd followed you there. But that's when I started to grow up very, very quickly. Once all of a sudden, here's your whistle, here's your flip flops, you're on pool duty, and you go, what? <laughs> well, there's a few things. I mean, I went, I went and did, and as soon as I left Strand that summer, um, I had done when I was at school in the last two years at school, I had done labouring work for SJ Canning and the Sons in Whitehead, the building firm. And yeah. they got they got the contract a, year, a few years before to renovate the pool because there was a European funding grant given to it because it was a, a Victorian yeah. open air swimming pool, blah, blah. This is Whitehead swimming pool. Yeah. And I did yeah. a couple of years, lab- well, I did a, a summer's labouring there where we put in the new change rooms and we put in a a, a, a kind of a concrete expandable floor in the pool, renovate, renovated the valves. Everything. So, you know, I I I was in 
deeply in love with the pool, having been a yeah. child there for all my summers. Mm-hmm. And then I got the chance to work on it, doing that, labouring, um, which was a, an eye-opener in itself, labouring. Yeah. But um, but there, there's another connection to the pool. But then when I left Strand, I did a summer under the tutelage of a, I can't remember his second name, a guy called John from Green Island, who was a really nice fella. He looked after the pool, and I went in and did uh, four days a week in the summer doing lifeguarding then. John. Short fella, blonde hair. Short fella, yeah. Had an entry and exit wound from a bullet. (laughs) I know him well. I used to work with him too. There you go. Yeah, he worked in Dubai for a while. but he. That's right. Yeah, that was just after he'd fallen into bad company and managed to get an entry and exit wound in his leg. Well, I went in there and did a did a did a, a summer with him, and that was a wee bit of an eye opener. And yeah. uh, you know, John was a great guy, but the pool was a wee bit it was a wee bit chaotic and all that sort of thing. But from that, then at the mm. end of that summer, um, at, there was a job opening at Carrick Leisure Centre, mm. and I fell into that, which was great actually. Yeah, and, and the, you're talking about you know being given the given the your flip flops and say right you're on the pool and that's it you're you're in there and I remember that and there's a lot there's a few there's a few things we can talk about there but there was there's there's something else about that job that makes me think um, sometimes very clearly about how you know how to get stuff done mm-hmm. and I'll remember you know I remember when you when I was in some sort some some shitty situations in the military in mm-hmm. in in some shitty place somewhere and you're dealing with lots of Shit. Uh, yeah, are we allowed to say that? I, I <laughs> yeah, guess yeah, we are. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're, you know, there, there's a job that you, you do have to get your hands dirty, and they're getting your hands dirty in ways that you might not want to. I will never forget the first night I cleaned out the the wet changing rooms down in the bowels of Carrick Leisure Centre, yeah. and I got to the bit, and, and there was a fellow called Gilly yep. showing me how to do it. Um, John Gilfillan, fantastic bloke. David Gilfillan, I think his name was. Anyway. These names, it's going to kill me all the way through this. But I said, right, okay, so we've, so he says, right, we hose down the showers and you get all the stuff. Well, it's not stuff, it's pubes, isn't it? Yeah, Let's be yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah. You get all the pubes and the soap and it all gathers in the plug holes. And he says, right, okay. And he says, right, okay, get that now. And we put that and we bin that in a separate bag. And I says, okay, what do you use to get the hairs out? He's, and he said, your hand. <laughs> So your last job, if you're on wet changing rooms every night, was to lift half a carrot's pubes out of the, uh, <laughs> the, the 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 plug hole. That 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 I'll always remember that. I say if you want to if you want to get something done, get your hand down and reach it and pull them out. And I have no qualms doing that any anywhere now. That's <laughs> strangely enough. Well, do you know, on my very first day, <clears throat> I don't know if you, was John Cosgrove there in your day. Yes, Young John Club. came in oh. when I worked there. Lovely fellow. John, John came up to me and said, um, so uh, you've got like an O-levels and all, have you? I said, yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, right. I've got one, he said, an art, something like that, you know. And then he said, um, and you did A-levels and everything? I said, yeah, yeah, I did. I And and, and you went to university? Yeah, yeah I did, yeah. <laughs> well, you still have to pick the pubes out of the drain at the end of the night like the rest of us. <laughs> Never a truer word was spoken, John. <laughs> And I just went, well, that's me putting my box, you know, and, and teaching you how to sweep the main hole. So, yeah, it was really got my eyes opened and, and, you know, loved it. I mean, I fell in love with leisure from that minute. I knew this was, I'd found something I, w- I was happy at. It was like the family for me, you know. I, yeah. I really enjoyed it, you know, all the diversity. 
because nobody knew what that word even was in those days. But it was, well, there's it was another. Great there, fun. There's a few influences from that that time. John McCormick, who was the yeah, assistant manager under yeah. Norman, yeah. Um, he was an influence on both both of us. I know that. Mm, big time. Um, but I remember Carrick Pool was the first place that I had to get in and get mm. get somebody out. And I remember it was um, uh, it was a Saturday morning. There was like you could have, as you as we always say in the business, you could have walked across the top of the heads in mm. the pool. Yeah. You know, it yeah. was that packed. One. And it taught me a lesson then again that I've never forgotten, and it actually has come in really, really useful in my military career. Was that don't don't see don't see the pattern, look beyond the pattern. I always remember thinking about this mm. because. We used to do some stuff around observa- observation in mm-hmm. the military, and it was about how do you start to see past the patterns of life into mm-hmm. what might be happening if you're doing some sort of observation role. And you could you could do that figuratively as much as you could do it in the physical sense. How do you mm-hmm. look beyond a pattern? And I remember the, the pool that day, that Saturday morning, was just a writhing, boiling mass of children's mm-hmm. limbs. I suddenly sensed that there was something beyond that, and there, there it was. It was a, it was a wee fellow who'd gone down, and nobody had seen, and everybody was on top, and there were legs and arms and splashing, and that, all without thinking, as you do, as your training teaches you. I dived in under the mass and pulled him up and got him out, and uh, you know he was fine. There was no, there was no drama, but the, the thing that I always remember is. That's the first time I kind of saw through the pattern, yeah. And I took that with me in all my lifeguard and stuff, and thought, "Don't get drawn into the pattern. Always, if you find yourself sitting there looking at a pattern, get up, do something, you know, move away from the pattern because the pattern will draw you in." <laughs> um, and I've 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 used that, and I, I still use it in our consultancy. You know, you talk about patterns. We talk about patterns of behaviour. How do you see beyond patterns of behavior to what's causing things to happen? And that was a really, really good lesson, I remember. That's really interesting you say that. A lot of the stuff that I do now is exactly what you're talking about. Uh, okay, I, I sell detection software, etc. But I also do a lot of times training lifeguards and talking to them about the real life and what it's like. And one of the things we're doing quite a lot of work now is is looking beyond the pattern. And I, I wrote this little piece called The Gorilla in Your Pool. And the, 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 at the end of the day, it was, if you're not looking for the gorilla, you won't see the gorilla. Mm-hmm. You know, so as you said, if you're looking for the patterns, you'll only see the patterns. That's right. And, and I've been talking to guys in Australia about how they hunt the pool. That's what they, they talk about in Australia, that we were hunting the pool. And that's really interesting that, that there, there's a, a life skill again that you picked up on lifeguarding or, or, or recognized. And I've just followed it the whole way through. And, Absolutely. And the more and more people I talk to who are ex-lifeguards <sighs> are are using some of those visionary basic life skills that they learned as a lifeguard and have taken it on. And in the strangest of ways, back in the day when you were sitting in the chair, you never would have dreamed where, where this would have taken you. Not at all. And to be honest, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have articulated it like this uh, Yeah, yeah. until Experience. maybe five, 10 years ago. Yeah. But patterns now for us in, in, in our practice uh, in Thrive and Kinworks are hugely important. Um, I talk quite frequently to, I listen to people um, and talk to them about the patterns that they are involved in. And, you know, we talk about patterns of behavior in organizations. And I always, you know, it's 
there, there's there's a thing that we say in our business. Well, Lynn and I say it. There's two of us. <laughs> there's a thing that we say when we when we talk to people in 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 organisations. We we talk to them about stuff, but we always say to them, hold it lightly. And hold it lightly for us means we're going to be talking about stuff that sometimes is very upfront and and almost personal to you, and it'll get mm-hmm. you. It'll get your blood boiling sometimes, but just hold it lightly because then it'll enable you to to talk about it in a way that you can approach it. And one of the things that we talk about and, and get people to hold lightly are the moments in in their working day that are the times when they they look down or up and think, "Oh, good God, here we go again. Here, here it comes again." You know, yeah. and that is the that is the beginning of a pattern. That's the beginning of a pattern of behaviour, which is usually reinforced by all sorts of stuff that goes on before it and during it that if you start to step back and see the pattern you can say all right when we get to the moment where everybody says oh my god here we go again you could actually do something about it you know you don't have to get to that moment and beyond it when you're in that pattern again and things are going to ratchet as they say so you know, that pattern thing is something that I have taken with me from that day in Carrick Fergus Pool all the way through both mm. both careers, you know. And it's very powerful stuff. It's very powerful stuff. So if you don't change your behavior, you don't change the outcome and you don't change the pattern? Well, there's there's the old saying in, in neuro-linguistic programming about, you know, what <laughs> if you keep doing what you always do, you'll, you'll get yeah. what you always get, you know what I mean? Yeah. But there's also the there's the opportunity to put a gap in there's the the opportunity to say i know i know i'm being i know i'm part of a pattern here how do i just stop what's happening and say i i'm part of what's going on i'm part of this problem i'm part of this pattern but i'm i'm willing to step back and see it and i'm willing to say i understand that you see what's happening different differently from me but let's try and let's try and un, 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 uncover what's going on and the thing that we do it sounds very grandiose. System change, as we call it. But the thing that we do is look for the. There, there are systemic structures that back up how how organisations and people behave. And if you can start to scratch those away, and actually look at them in a human way, and, and get people to talk to each other as people, then you can actually make a lot of progress. And people start to see that you know the patterns that they're they're caught up in don't necessarily have to unfold the way that they do. I'm, I'm, I can see you falling asleep now. I'm talking to no, you. No, like no, because consultant. I, <laughs> I was talking to an ex lifeguard uh, who's now a pilot for BA, and I can say it on this one, although I couldn't say it on his. Um, and a lot of it, what really intrigued me was about the tr- the training they do, and about that the brown stuff hits the worry thing, just to, to take stock for you know 15 20 seconds you know don't, yeah. it, it's all about training them to put the gap in yeah put the gap in and i found that actually really intriguing mm. um and you've just more or less said the same thing in, in that to break the pattern put the gap in yeah and that's it so a lot <laughs> us of lifeguards lot, are clever people us yes <laughs> well we don't start off that way but maybe no, maybe no. it gets like that but uh but yeah so you know there I don't know. I don't know whether the, those sorts of things are because you are the sort of person that wants to keep those those lessons that you've identified with yeah. you and and keep them, or it's because that's the way that's the way life is. But I'm, mm. you know, I'm not. I I always said to you know anybody in the army, 
I said, you know, one of the things I learned was that everybody's got something to learn and everybody's got something to, to, to learn from. Um, I had no hesitation asking anybody around me for advice. Yeah. Um, and I think <laughs> there's, there's much more about learning that I would relate to than about knowing. Yes, knowing I agree. Knowledge, I, I always find a dangerous thing because knowledge is... And, and I'm not a scientist, so if I was mm. a scientist, knowledge would be probably where I would graduate, par. gravitate yep. towards. But actually, I'm not a scientist. I'm more of a, a you know a, a two bit consultant. But I'm more interested <laughs> in I'm more interested in learning and how do you how do you start to unfold mechanisms, patterns that can help people to learn as opposed to know. Because when you start to know, it's the, all the doors are closed. If you know what I mean. Uh, my God, we're getting a, we're getting a bit ethereal here, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, I know it's amazing, isn't it? Let's get back David, to the pool. Yeah, get back to the pool. But just to finish on that, David, the pilot actually said the same thing that what you said in the former there was that maybe it's because you know as lifeguards, you know, every lifeguard isn't the same. Every lifeguard isn't going to become a manager, if you like, or whatever in in life. But there, there's a percentage of us are cut from the same cloth and they end up in the same sort of you know the, the helping industry. You know, he said that's what we're we're nearly programmed to do. Or we want to do, and we, that, that's where we get satisfaction from from helping people. I think it's. I think that's absolutely spot on. I think I I might go a little bit further and say that the time that I spent doing the job, um, Carrick and Whitehead, and probably more so Whitehead, because in Whitehead I was lifeguarding and looking after the pool, manage, managing the pool, um, and the sense of responsibility and accountability that you gather when you when you actually realize um it, you know i'm not gonna it's not hollywood people's lives yeah. don't depend on it yeah. but yeah. you know it's like you are responsible for everybody in that pool mm. when they're in the pool and you're responsible for getting people into that pool in the morning in a mm. good in good shape yeah. and after they leave you're responsible for getting that pool into good shape and that's one of the things i always you know i'm always i'm as keen on the cleaning the changing rooms aspect as I am on looking after people in the pool aspect because the whole thing is and it's 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 a service uh, and I suppose going back to what um your your last contributor said you you are very heavily very heavily into a service industry that has a huge amount of accountability around people's lives as well so when you start to think about it I, I guess you could develop it like that I'm I'm just Suddenly thinking, all um, our CD CDT class at A level, right? There was three of us: you, me, and Mikey Brown. Browner, I'm big Browner. And where did he end up in the old um, fire, fire, fire and rescue service? Really? Yeah, I didn't know Browner um, did that. Yep, he's um, he's retired now. But again, that's you know maybe something to do with CDT that we're. We well, all that's funny because we <laughs> that's my my stepping stone out of the military was. As deputy chief fire officer, yeah, Suffolk and so, or somewhere like that, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, I was the first person from outside the fire service to be appointed into the fire service as a chief officer, uniformed, operational, and um, that was that went down well. That was a some experience. There were there were articles in magazines about me saying who the, is this guy and what does he know, um, but actually it was a brilliant, brilliant two or three years. I spent fantastic, fantastic bunch of people. Yeah, can just on that, can I just put you through something that I've talked to someone else about 
on that experience where a boy from Whitehead came into a a meeting and spoke to another fellow who knew somebody in Ireland, um, Ian Brown. Oh, yes, that's right, that's right. Ian Brown, who was um, a, an interim property manager in Carrick, or sorry, in, Carrick, in um, Suffolk County Council. Yeah, that's right. He, he loves he loves telling me that story. You know, you come in with the Irish accent, and you went, "I know somebody from Ireland." Yeah, I know, and it's so <laughs> it's so cliched. You know, Northern Ireland's a small place. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, you walk into a meeting with a guy who actually, you know, I I was looking forward to this meeting. Uh, this guy I'd heard was a really good guy to start working with. I needed to get close to him in terms of the property yeah. management side of the organisation. And uh, the first thing he says is, "Are you from Whitehead?" And I'm like, "What." What? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? I said yes. He says I know somebody from Whitehead. I said right. What's his name? <laughs> Rob McLaughlin. I thought, oh, Jesus Christ! <laughs> Small. What world. are the chances? <laughs> yeah, he loves telling me that story. We, we, you know, we recount that one quite a bit. But bringing us back again. Well, hang to... on, hang on. Just right, as sorry. an addendum, as an, a wee okay. appendix to that. Yep. <laughs> he's married to Judith Toland. Yeah. Who Lynn has worked with twenty five years ago. Lynn Is knows Judith Toland. Yeah. What are the chances? No, and I, I was best man at their wedding. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Flip me. I know. Small you world. You can't say that in podcast, by the way. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> you, you took your year out at Carrick Fergus, but I presumed all, all along you'd sort of planned, right, gather myself and then let's go and do... Well, not necessarily all along. I would say okay. that I left Strombolis, uh, worked for a year in the world of work, and yep. thought... Okay, I was never going to be a teacher. That's, I know that, and that's okay. Um, don't beat yourself up about it. But I think I do need to go to university because, you know, I, I think I think I think the thing is, you think you're capable of doing a degree. Well, why not try it? Uh, there was an opportunity to go to Jordanstown to the University of Ulster to do something that I actually wanted to do, which was. It was called sports mm-hmm. studies then, I suppose it's yep. sports science yep. now. Yep. And um and I thought, well, that looks like something I could give a go. Um and and very, very luckily got in. And um when 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 people say, So what university did you go to? University of Ulster, they're already saying, Oh my goodness, what what's that? And yeah. then you and then they say, and what was your degree? And and you say, Well, it's a BA in sports studies, and then they're like, Okay, I can see the Mickey Mouse outline of your ears from here, sort of thing. But it was the it was a fantastic three years with fantastic people. And I, you know, there there is stuff that I did in that degree that I still use today in mm. in and around soft systems methodologies and all those sorts of things around psychology and um, sociology that have been hugely useful to me. So I would always hold it up as my alma mater and my, uh, you know. And then was it in the summer then that started in Whitehead Swimming Pool? Yeah, so in the summers, um, big Norm, Norm Houston. Yeah, big Norman, yep. Lives lives in Ballyclare now, apparently. He says, he said, Richard, I don't necessarily agree that this swimming pool should even be open, but it is. Um, and he was a lovely guy. He's a great sense yeah, yeah. of dry sense oh, of humor. And he, dry, dry beyond yeah. belief. And he, he'd he'd sit, he'd open and he'd bring down the keys on a certain date in June, and I'd meet him and he'd say, "I don't necessarily agree that this should be open, but it is." Um, and we'd both look at it, and it would be black. The water would be black yeah. after a winter. The sides would be black, and he'd say, "Good luck. You're opening in two weeks' time. Um, I want mm-hmm. to see. I want to be able to eat my lunch off the side, sort of thing." Um, and I would recruit a little team, and we would get going. 
and spend a couple of weeks cleaning, deep cleaning, um, and then emptying and refilling a few times, um, which was the best process ever because that was that was emptying it in in the daylight and then staying up in some kind of full moon starlit Belfast loch scene and then filling it. It's a good time just to, to, for those who don't know, Whitehead Swimming Pool is an open air tidal pool. Correct. Um, what, it was built in the 30s, I believe, wasn't it? I think it was built late 20s, early 30s. Early 30s, yep. Um, um, and it's it's situated in Whitehead, which was a Victorian, Edwardian, Victorian I seaside, think call resort. It seaside resort. Yes, and it was built for all the townies coming out of the big smoke back in it the was, day. Yeah, and it was um, it was like you know go down and take the waters in Whitehead for your for your health sort yep. of thing. So I could I could imagine Whitehead as the sort of place where little bathing huts were wheeled down to the yeah. the beach yep. and so on. Um, did 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 you learn how to swim in Whitehead swimming pool like I did? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember my mother who's a school teacher, still lives in Whitehead. I, I was telling my two boys about this the other day. I actually still remember the rubber ring yep. <laughs> that I had going into that pool the first time. That's how traumatic it was. Yeah. <laughs> so at what? six years of age or whatever it was, getting bucked into this swimming pool that was seawater. Well, I remember it was, it was my mother at the side <laughs> saying, go further and further away from the edge and swim yep. towards it. And that was... So that was yeah. that was my mother's yeah. version of learning how to swim, and and eventually I'd cracked it. And after yeah. one weekend, I was far enough away to do a yeah. couple of strokes, and that was. Yeah. And I remember the next weekend we went to Larn Pool, which was a big treat. Oh yeah, yeah. Larn Pool, me and John and Victoria and my he dad, did. and my dad threw me in to prove the theory. So he said, <laughs> apparently you can swim now. In you go. go. So he threw me in, and I remember still sitting on the bottom of Lauren's yep. swimming pool thinking, I better do that, that thing where yep. I swim to the side, or else yep. I'm here for good. And of course, fresh water isn't as buoyant as salt water. So nope. we, we've set the scene that it's a bloody cold pool. It's an open air pool. Uh, I don't think it had diving boards it, yes, by the time uh, yeah. you'd taken it on, but by the time you were working at it, though. No, no, we still, I spent, I spent. Two years, three years with the boards up, but then they had to take right. them down as a health yeah. risk. Yeah, yeah. The, the scaffold had rusted to bits. Yeah, yeah I remember actually, jumping off those and shitting uh, myself. Yeah, actually, coming. <laughs> I mean, the top one. It seemed it. It must have been twenty five feet yeah. up. Yeah, you know. <laughs> it felt like two miles. It's I remember funny. having a nosebleed climbing the steps. For God's sake! I, as a child, I remember Whitehead Whitehead swimming pool had two things for me as a child. One was the pinball machines that were sixpence. In the cafe, I remember. Yeah, remember going down there. Can't remember the name of the cafe. You probably will. It was called. But, the and the scene. other thing was this. That's right. Um, but I do remember this funny smell that was always about there. You know, sort of like grass burning. <laughs> yes, <laughs> seemed to be a regular in, in Whitehead swimming pool back in the day. Yeah, we didn't really understand not, not, what that smell. I was, was too young. I didn't know what it was. The yep. smell that we were attracted to was the Welsh rarebit <laughs> and chips. Yeah, um, but there were a lot. Of, there were a lot of other blokes and girls sitting around yeah. who were, yeah, very relaxed. I thought long hair, and I think, you know, as um, as legend has it, you know, that's where Sting used to stay in the seventies, wasn't it? And maybe that's what he was over just for a, a dip. Well, there's all sorts of legends about who who appeared in the scene, but I, I, I think I think the scene was a place where the Northern Ireland's, um, let's call it. 
light light users drug culture sort of developed yep. in in yep. the scene. Um, yep. uh, we were we were totally oblivious to it, of course. But um, oh, absolutely. But hey, I just wanted to know where my sixpence was coming from for the the pinball machine and all the big but, lads. Yeah, a cool pool. I remember. Um, um, I remember summers when they used to bring, and of course you could see the train coming into Whitehead from the pool because it came round the Blah Hole mm-hmm. through the tunnel. Yeah. And um, I remember the train arriving and you knew that day that there was going to be 30 or 40 kids from North Belf- North or West Belfast on <laughs> yeah. the train, highly yep. excited about a day in Whitehead going to the pool. And I remember them coming down yep. and they all, they'd come into the pool like a <laughs> some sort of rabble. <laughs> Um, and they'd all go in and get changed. Uh, it wasn't really getting changed. They would come out of the change rooms in kind of grey Y fronts. And yeah. uh, I remember them. They'd always one or two of them. The young fellas were like, well, they'd run out of the change rooms. They'd run straight in and jump into the pool. And to a to a to an individual, they'd come out and they'd go, Jesus Christ, Mister, what is that? And, you know, because they they obviously assumed it was heated, like all the other pools yeah. they'd ever been in. Yeah. And I'd say that seawater sun. That's what it feels like. Yeah, what what temperatures were? Do you remember the temperatures, the average temperatures, or what what it came in at? Fifty three, if you were lucky. Fifty four. If you kept if you kept and, the water in and there was a good week of sunshine, yeah. you might get into the sixties, low sixties. I, I remember that. I think that was one of the most probably asked questions. You know, how long has it been in, or how long has it been since you changed it? People used to. Um, the the thing was, if you kept the if you kept the water in for about a week. And then we used to do this when we were young uh, as swimmers in the pool. But then I remember doing it, and, and mm-hmm. it was a naughty thing to do with a couple of the regulars we used to do it with. We used to go out to the end in high tide and jump into the sea and then jump into the pool. Mm-hmm. And you would feel ah, two, yeah. two or three degrees yeah. difference. And it was like two it was like a bath. Different. You know, it was fantastic. Talk me through. You've just, you've just um, deep cleaned the pool, and Norman's eating his lunch off, off the changing room floor. How do you fill this bloody thing? Go from emptying first. So it's about okay. two hours before low tide and you need to check the tide. So you always have the tide tables with you and you yep. know you know yep. when you're getting a decent low tide and a decent high tide. And um, the on a decent both, low yep. tide, yeah, a couple of um, hours before low tide, you, you, you open the bottom valve, which flushes the water out mm-hmm. and takes hopefully takes with it some of the sediment. But then you get... A couple of big hoses, yep. which we always had access to, and you you wash out the pool, scrub it down, disinfect it, and at the very moment of low tide, the pool is empty, and you shut the bottom valve. So you've got a valve at mm-hmm. the bottom of the pool that yep. you shut that, that lets it all yep. go out. Six or seven feet above that is the is the top valve. So once you've emptied the pool, uh, you go away and do other things, and then you lock it up at six o'clock at night, and then you're back down there for the high tide, which is probably about one in the morning, go down there, and when the water is a foot above the top valve, foot or two above the top valve, you open the top valve. And the idea is you fill the pool with that beautiful high tide, yep. clear water that's coming into the loch. You know what I mean? Um, yep. So there's no surface crap on it, basically. Yeah. But it was always a magical moment for me in the middle of the night, yep. opening the top valve, and there's the, there's your new your new pool water coming in. And... Uh, you know, it was always there was always a kind of a little bit of magic about, especially on a moonlit clear night. There you are, yeah, doing yeah. your job. It was good stuff. That that was the plant room. 
<laughs> that was the plan. That was the uh, yeah, that was yeah. <laughs> that was me in overalls doing that. Yep. Yeah. No filters. No. No um, automatic dosing. Nothing. You may, nothing. How did you dose the poo? So you would you would fill it and then you'd make sure that you had enough time to give it a shock dose first thing when it was full. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but really, you didn't need mu- you didn't need much in the way of chemicals to keep that pool very safe because. And there was a yeah. guy that came down from Carrick Leisure Centre to test it every time we yeah. filled it, and then on a weekly yeah. basis. And um, it didn't take much. So there wasn't a lot of chemicals involved. Of course, you had to use chlorine mm. and, and all that sort of stuff with yeah. it. But it wasn't the sort of pool. I always remember as a child going to a pool in Larne and you'd come out and you'd smell different. And it you was like stink, probably the cleanest you'd yeah. smelt with the chlorine yeah. and all that, and your eyes would sting and all that. Whereas Whitehead, you were frozen to the bone, but you were, you know, you, you smelled of the sea. Mm. And that's what people liked yeah. about Whitehead. It was. It was more seawater than anything else, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I used to, you know, one of the things that people loved about Whitehead was dipping in the pool and coming out and letting the the water dry in the sun. Uh, and you know, it was kind of that holiday feel about it, you know. Yeah, I, I still love that when I'm sailing. You know, coming out of the salt water, I I never get a shower when I come out of the water. I always just like feeling that salt crystallizing on you and it takes you back to, to Whitehead Pool on a sunny day. You know, there was no place like an earth Whitehead on a sunny day, you know, in that no. far corner. It was roasting beyond belief. It was, it was like Malibu, wasn't it? It was like the West Coast of America, yeah. you know. It's uh, it's a pity it's not open now, isn't it? Well, it's a pity and it's also, I, I guess, it's an understandable pity because it's like how how much money would you have to spend to keep that place going compared to the return? How many people nowadays would want their kids swimming in a, a seawater swimming pool? You know what I mean? It's probably a wee bit. It's probably a wee bit too degrees, harsh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably a wee bit too I, harsh. I, I suppose it's the, the the fullness of time has has uh, <laughs> has detracted from what it was really like and how much it cost to run the blooming thing. So it's yeah. probably no wonder. Um, now that that was really around the time when you decided to head off into the military then, would that be right? Yeah. Um, it was, again, you know, calling it deciding was, um, you know, it was a year or two. It was two a gradual of, process. Yeah. Of thinking about what's next. And I guess the biggest thing, and, and you know, in my generation, it, it was a pretty common thing to ask yourself at, in your early twenties, do I want to stay in Northern Ireland for the rest of my mm-hmm. life? Or yep. do I want to see something else? Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of that about it. And, my dad had always, he'd always encouraged me in my thoughts around possibly joining the joining the army. And he'd said, you know, if you want, if you think that that's what you you want to do, give it a go because it might be what you, you actually do. You're good at. <laughs> it might be something that you're good at. Um, so I just got a load of brochures. I remember, and you were with me one yeah, one day. I remember. And I said, I was showing you these brochures and saying, maybe it's worth a go. So I, I contacted, um, I remember I contacted Queen's University liaison officer mm-hmm. and had to go for an interview with him. And um, it was in my last year in the pool. Um, and he said, and little did I know, anyway, this is one of these stories that comes around <laughs> as well. The guy was, he was a guy called um, Baker. And he was a lovely man. And he'd been a, I think he'd been a, 
a colonel in the Royal Engineers originally, and he was now the university liaison officer for Queen's University, which had to be kept pretty quiet because that's not the sort of place that you wanted the army advertising and all that sort of thing. But I went for an interview with him and he said, so what do you think you want to do? And I said, well, obviously I'd been reading all the literature and I, I, comp- I just said, right, Obviously, I want to be in the infantry. I want to. I want to close with the enemy and kill them. You know, that's what I'm. That's what I'm about. And he said, "Okay." He said, and this is this is up, straight up. He said, "Well, the kind of the parent regiment for you would be the Royal Irish Rangers, yep. as they were then. They're, they're, yep. They've been disbanded now." Obviously. He said, um, "The the parent regiment for you would be the Royal Irish Rangers." But he said, "You know, you're not going to be able to." Do it. I didn't know what he was playing out then, and I said, "Okay." Okay, if I can't do that, then I want to drive tanks. I want to go and, and kill the enemy with tanks. And he said, "Well, you know, if you're not if you're not going to be in the infantry, you're not going to be an officer in the cavalry. Let's be honest." And sort of thing. And he says, "He said I would recommend either the artillery or the engineers to you." And I said, "Okay, I'll have a go at those." And the next thing I would, I found myself on a familiarisation visit to Lark Hill, um, firing light guns with um, the Royal Artillery, and then putting. They they put me through a lot of fitness tests. Yeah, now I'd spent <laughs> the summer. I, I, I remember. You know, Blackhead Lighthouse was just a, yeah. a, a bimble yeah. up and down the steps. So uh, I went and did their fitness test, and they thought, right, we'll have this guy. He's 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 ours. Um, yeah. He sounds a bit funny, but we'll, we'll sort that out. out. And um, and they said, look, why don't you go and try and pass the regular commissions board in? Um, I think it was July. And then maybe you can get to Sandhurst for September. So I went to the regular commissions board. Um, I hit it like a ton of bricks, gave it everything I had. I was probably, you know, way off the mark in some ways. But th- I got a letter two weeks later saying, "Would you like to to, to join Sandhurst in September?" And I didn't really realise how big that was, but I think my dad did. So the, you know, there, there I was on a, I think it was a, it was a Sunday morning, ready to get the boat. With an ironing board under my arm, for God's sake! Yeah, I was going to say. My mother made me take an ironing that. board. <laughs> oh, I, you know, she arranged for an iron to be there sent. Why couldn't she have okay. done it with the iron Brilliant. board? I've no Brilliant. idea. So That's I left the house moment. with an iron board. <laughs> yeah, with my dad crumbled at the top of the stairs, unable to speak because he was crying so much. I think he realised yeah. then that that was it. I'm all, I'm, I was out there. I thought, you know what? I'm joining the army for three years. It's a, you know, and then. When I got to Sandhurst on what they now call Ironing Board Sunday, I walked across the square with an ironing board under my arm. Um, and I remember the colour sergeant standing there and looking at me and thinking, oh boy, we've got one here. We've got a real live one here. And when they heard my accent, they kind of rubbed their hands in glee and thought, oh, this is going to be so good. We are going to ream this guy inside out. And they did, to be fair. I suppose that's... You would tell me that's the job, isn't it? They, well, they always say, is it a cliche, break that's you down and build you up? That's right. And after six weeks, my colour sergeant came up behind me and whispered in my ear, you're all right, Mr. Hewitt, I'm going to leave you alone. Um, and that was it. So, you know, I'm not saying they let off me, but I knew I knew that the six weeks of them trying to get me sent home had finished. So that was it's fantastic. It's funny that summer, just you talking about it now, I remember, I mean, you, you you were a bit of a gym rat beforehand, but I mean, I remember you're you're running and with I think your rucksacks with weights and all that sort of shit up up the hundred and forty seven steps around Blackhead Lighthouse. But the Indeed. other thing I remember is the number of newspapers you read. 
coming up to those interviews. You, know, you come into the office and there's flipping every newspaper under the sun from every, you know, every color, if you like, to, to, to obviously to, to build yeah. up your your current current affairs. affairs. That's, what, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> I couldn't find it. Oh yeah, I could I yeah. could quote from the Daily I, Telegraph. I remember no the Guardian and all sorts lying around. It's funny the way these things spring back when you're chatting, and, and I think the, the you know obviously we kept bumped into you with the odd time and leave, and you could see the the, the, the small changes in you. But I think you won the the, the sword of honor, isn't that correct? You know? No, it wasn't. Well, it wasn't the Sandhurst sword of honor. Um, the the, the Sandhurst sword of honor is is awarded yep. to the top cadet, and um, my God, yep. it is a prestigious award. Then when you go to your arm or your service, there will be another award for, from that arm or service. And in the Royal Artillery's case, it's a sword. And at the end of my... So I went straight from Sandhurst to my young officer's course, um, which is to kind of get you into the way of things in the, uh, in, yeah. in the arm or service that you're in. And at the end of that, five months, whatever it was, I, w- I was awarded the sword, the, the Royal Artillery Institution sword, which is like, I mean, Jesus, like, it is a hell of an honour. But I... You know, I remember it was awarded in Woolwich in the days when Woolwich was the um, the depot of the Royal Artillery, and they have a very grand dinner and fantastic uh, meal and so on. And I remember I invited my dad over, but he he didn't. My dad didn't travel much further than Carrickfergus, let's be honest. And I remember, you know, everybody's parents there. I had a I had a, a another mate there, and I remember travelling back from the dinner on the tube in London the next day with a sword, thinking. How how surreal is this? You wouldn't get away with that now. <laughs> and I've still got yep. it, you know. I've still got this this Wilkinson's, yeah. you know, real sword. It's, it's um, funny because I, I can't do much with it. It was my mother told day. me because she had met your mum in the hairdressers. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. That's told right. Everybody. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. that's that's the thing, you know. Your mother, you know, that was a big thing for her. Um, but I guess it was yeah, a big absolutely. thing for me. So when you awarded that, then. Then you get sent to the, you get sent to what they believe is a prestigious regiment. So I was sent away to to Germany for three years to serve with First Regiment Horse Artillery, which meant that you know if you're going to First Regiment, you're, you know, you're on your way and all that sort of thing. But actually, it was the start of a twenty year roller coaster ride for me, which um, which I had to get off at the end of twenty years because I had to go and do something else. But it was um, you know it was formative stuff. And how long were you? In the service, but you I mean the thing that always always sticks with me is the first Gulf War, which you you were involved with. Um, and you might laugh at this, but I think that was probably the last time I actually wrote letters to someone that um <laughs> I wasn't in love with. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it was an actual proper letter. It's funny you should say that. Funny you should say that because um, it's thirty years ago, last week I think Gulf War and um. So we, I was deployed as part of a force that went out kind of five months before January. Um, so we were living in the desert for quite some time. And um, so we were writing letters. They were called blueies because they had to be airmail. I remember you telling me that now. Yep. And my dad went over to um, see off my dad because he died a few months ago. And Victoria, my sister, had got all the letters that my mum and dad had kept for years and they were these letters from the Gulf War and um, and in amongst them were the letters you, that you're, you're referring right. to and this but the, the kind of the, the range of letters that I got were so it was so funny I mean I had a letter from a guy who was a mate of John's who was at University with John and played rugby with him 
but um, his whole letter was a diagram of a conversion <laughs> that he kicked in the last minute of a game to win it, and it was like him, a drawing of him Brilliant. standing and the dimensions of the posts, and uh, you know that. So that's one one of the letters I got. Another letter uh, had a big bag full of letters from a primary school class in London, who had kind of adopted me as a soldier to say. This guy is Captain Hewitt, and he's going to be writing to you. So I wrote them a letter, and they wrote me <laughs> forty letters back. It's fantastic. Uh, you know, uh, it was brilliant. Uh, I remember because the call obviously came from your mother. Would you write Richard a wee letter? You know, he's. I think I was living in Scotland in those days, actually. Uh, but it's just whenever I knew I was going to be chatting to you, I was trying to actually remember the last time I wrote a letter, a proper letter to anybody about anything. And and I'd probably have to go back, and and that's when I clocked to me. Yeah, that's about thirty years ago, isn't it? I got so many letters. I mean, I didn't have time to reply to them all for God's sake because I actually had a job to do. But I got so many letters; it was wild. And then, of course, on Christmas Eve that year, Christmas Eve nineteen ninety, my niece was born, and it was the first kind of grandchild mm-hmm. in the family. Victoria yep. had. Rebecca and it was Christmas Eve and I didn't know what was going on because I was in the middle of the desert we were in the middle of nowhere we just moved out into another spot and the headquarters I was in was quite a major headquarters and um, I remember on Christmas Day the the world's media arrived alongside Prince Charles who was visiting the headquarters and you know we were just in the background sort of thing but when they were wrapping up the visit, all these reporters were walking past. And um, this is the days before mobile phones, really, you know. And uh, I remember a reporter walked past with a Belfast accent and she heard me talking. Um, and she turned around and said, are you from Northern Ireland? You know, it's a classic, are you from Northern Ireland? Are you from Northern Ireland? <laughs> I am. And um, I, think this was, I think this was somebody, I'm not sure, and maybe, and maybe I've got the details wrong, but I think this was somebody called Barbara Ann from Downtown Radio. Mm, name rings a bell. And um, I, she said, <laughs> "Well, I've, I've got a, I've got a, a phone here that you could ring." I, I said to her, "You know, and we got chatting, and I said, you know, I think, I think my uh, my sister might have had a baby. I'm not sure." And all that. well, I tell you what, I've got a phone here you could ring your home with. And yeah, I thought, right. "What?" It's like. Star Trek technology, but yeah, she had the early generation satellite phone, and uh, she said, "Do you want to ring your house?" And I said, "That would be fantastic." And it was like two two o'clock or something in the afternoon where we were, so, but it was the morning back in Whitehead, and so I said, "I'd love to give him a call. That would be fantastic." Is that okay? And she said, "Yeah, go ahead. What a great story! Fantastic." So she's got her reporter there and all that, and, and I'm down. She, and I'm down the number, 37 Les Allen Avenue. And um, little did I know, uh, they, meanwhile, back in Les Allen Avenue, there's John and his mate Stumpy, who had been over for Christmas. They'd been to the White Cliff the <laughs> okay. night before, right? And they'd overindulged. They had got totally Shock. refreshed. And, and they were both lying in bed. It was about nine, half nine, ten in the morning there. They were lying in bed. My mum and dad had gone up to see Victoria in the hospital in Belfast because she just had the baby. The phone downstairs starts to ring and John and Stumpy are like, I'm not getting up. So I'm on the other end in the desert with Barbara Ann looking into my eyes and the phone's ringing. It's Christmas morning. And the phone's ringing and she said, is it nobody answering? I said, 
No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Nobody's answered. And she looked at me to think, her eyes said, what sort of house do you live in? Sort of thing. Mad house. And that was it. That was the end of that. Didn't get the chance to uh, say hello. So that was John. John's still quite proud of that, by the way. Is there not another story, really? It springs to mind about your mother contacting you in the desert and sends somebody's book, no, your aunt, auntie. Ah, Sheila. Oh, no. Is it Sheila? Yeah, no, no, no Kathleen. 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 And, and it's in somebody's book, is it? <laughs> no. This is a. Th- you may you may have to cut this out. I don't know. Well, no, you but tell me. Don't. I, you my, tell me. <laughs> my job. My job. I was an, I was the intelligence officer for for the the mm-hmm. unit I was with, and my job. Part of it was at night, at about midnight. The, the boss, the CEO, would arrive back into the headquarters and I'd have to brief him on everything that took place since the last time he was... And he'd been out seeing all the troops and so... So, and there was lots of intelligence that was coming through from US forces. So, you know, because it was the US we had the big slice of the operation. There was British intelligence, all that sort of thing. So I used to get all this intelligence and I had to brief him on what was going on. And it was pretty serious well, stuff, you know. Because we were, this was before <laughs> Christmas. People, yeah... We were starting to get ready to do yep. old Norman Schwarzkopf's yep. left hook into, and it, you know, it was all pretty exciting stuff. So one night I'm sitting there, and in comes the boss, and he he'd come in and he'd sling off his helmet and he'd say, "Right, cute, what's happening?" And I turn around and I'd, I have a specific way to brief him. So I'm off and running on my brief, and in those days we had a thing called ptarmigan, which is a cell phone. And we ripped the cell phone guts out of Germany, which is the British Army of the Rhine then, Cold War, put it into the desert. And this is like early cell technology, but it was it was secure. It was a, it was a, basically a, an early mobile phone type thing. It had a ptarmigan set on the wall of the, the, the armoured vehicle that I was in. And when that rang, it was usually important because not many people had ptarmigan nodes. My auntie Kathleen, who was a notorious drinker, who's whose pattern of life was to get hammered and ring yeah. everybody. She used to ring my mother and ring her sisters. Well, you know, you know yep. the usual yep. score. She lived in Glasgow, and she was, as, as, it, as, as her habit was, she was hammered one night, and she thought, I must get in touch with Richard to tell everybody, to tell Richard that everybody's okay and Victoria hasn't had the baby yet. This is just before Christmas. Yeah, so anyway... I'm sitting there in the headquarters. This is like science fiction. And the ptarmigan rings. And um, I said to my commanding officer, Colonel Rory Clayton, OBE, who's sitting there, and he's quite an intense guy with a laser-like stare. I said, excuse me, sir, I need to take that. Pulled off the ptarmigan, pressed the pressel on the switch and said, Captain Hewitt, intelligence, um, who's speaking? And there was a pause and all there was, Richard, it's your auntie Kathleen from Glasgow. And I was like, okay, don't don't give anything away. Just keeps calm. And I said, get off the phone. And it was her. It was her voice. I recognised it. And she said, Victoria's okay. She hasn't had the baby yet. We're all thinking of you and we're all loving you. And, and, and I said, okay, thanks, bye. And I hung up on her. And I didn't have time to think. So I turned around and it was like a 180 turn on my bench. And I turned around and the, the boss, CEO, was looking at me straight in the eye. And he said, who was that? And I looked straight at the eye back and said, that was my Auntie Kathleen from Glasgow, sir. And he kind of looked at me, and it must have been it must have been 10 seconds, it felt like yeah. a minute, looking at me thinking, I'm not going to go any further on this, Hugh. But we're going to find out what's happened here. 
So it turns out, and, and they did go out and find out what happened, and I got a briefing from the sig. Well, I had to go for a little interview without coffee with the signal squadron commander because somebody had fu- somebody had breached yeah, security. Yeah. My Auntie Kathleen had rung the army helpline, right? <laughs> they had patched her through by satellite because she been so, she'd told so many lies and was so insistent. They'd patched her through by satellite to the Ptarmigan node that I was on the end of, and somehow it had all happened. It turned out that I think, and I can say this now, George is still alive. Her husband, Kathleen, passed away a few years ago. I think I think the bill was something like, in those days, seven and a half grand that the MOD gave her. Flat-head. She yeah. wasn't worried about that. And um, But no, the, so it all unfolded as a bit of a story. But I'll tell you what, it was a bit of a shock when it happened. It still but makes my, me laugh. Rory Clayton... Rory Clayton said he dined out on that story many, many evenings, so that's good. That's yeah, good. I, I just remember laughing like I'm laughing now when, when I think when you first told me. 20 years, was it 20 years? I mean, we obviously can't cover 20 years in the military here, or how many years it was. 20 years, um, eventually kind of found my feet in a regiment called yeah. 7th Parachute Regiment Royal Horse Artillery, and that's the kind of parachute regiment of mm-hmm. the artillery. I did three tours in that altogether, and I ended up, my last tour was commanding officer of 7th Parachute Regiment, Royal Horse Artillery. So, and at, at the age of 40, and having commanded, I'm going to say this, and you know, I would say this, wouldn't I, but it's true, one of the elite regiments of the, of the British forces, then I thought to myself, you know, do I want to, do I want to stay, do I want to go, have I got more in me? Do I want to be a, you know, I, I wasn't. I wasn't going to be a, a four-star general, but you know, you, 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 it's a point, a stepping-off point where you might want to go and do other stuff. So I, I took the decision to leave the army after twenty years and two, two Gulf Wars, Which, I suppose. And well, yeah, my my career was bookended by the first Gulf War and then the second Gulf War, I suppose. What so was your rank then, the as as the commanding officer of the? I was a lift, the lieutenant colonel. colonel. Not bad for a, a wee yeah. boy from Whitehead. You know, you know well, there's no, not too many um, of you have done that. I'm hoping it didn't change me that much, but um, but yes, well, you know, I guess you're in a competitive, you're in a very competitive environment in the in the forces. I, you, you and you and I were always the sorts of people who would thrive in that sort of environment. So it, it's a kind of a career where you're always you're always being assessed, and that's fair enough. You get on with it, um, and. I was lucky in many, many respects, uh, but I have, you know, the people that I worked with from from bottom mm. to top and back down again were mm. the best people I've ever worked with in my life. And I'm, you know, I'm still yeah. in touch with many, many, many of my, my soldiers and my officers and my senior NCOs, and, and we all, you know, in our eyes, we're all yeah. the same age yeah. as we were when we served together. But you know, it's a, it's a, it's more than just yeah, a career. A, I mean, it's a huge a shared life experience, isn't it? You know, it, it and and exactly. I can sort of exactly. understand from you know even the way you're talking. You know, that brotherhood. People, those those of us who haven't served will never get it. We'll never understand it in the same way as obviously you, you talking to someone else. You, I, I'm guessing whenever you talk to someone else you've served with, there's you just slip right into a groove. There's a lingo, a language that you just and a respect for each other. I'm guessing. Yeah, and you, uh, I suppose you've shared experiences that um, are incendiary, robust, trialing, challenging, um, difficult, but you've also shared brilliant times together as well. So you've done the whole gamut of emotion with, with people, and um, th- those bonds are very, very strong. 
Um, and, you know, especially if you're part of the airborne fraternity where you're all sitting together before some member of the RAF throws you out the back door of <laughs> yeah. a plane, you know, that's all, that's all good camaraderie, good airborne brother stuff as well. It's, and I presume it, you just knew it was the right time to go, as you say. It was time to, to look at something else. Yeah. Um, the, the way I looked at it was it's, you know, it's never, it's never an easy decision. But I was... I was I'd had a 20 year career behind me which was very successful so I could I could put that notch in the old guitar um and I could I could vie for positions that were you know I would I would say pretty attractive with that experience but I was young enough to be able to do something else and to do yeah. you know to put in another career um and there was a whole wide world that I hadn't experienced called Civvy Street so you know it's the difference between coming out at that age and that, with that sort of momentum or coming out five or ten yeah. years later, maybe not quite so edgy. Yeah, sort of, not on the scrap heap, but I know what you mean, where a lot of people go, oh, he's 15, mm. you know, what can he do now? So you, end of life. Yeah, we end up a consultant. <laughs> you, um, you went from... Exactly. <laughs> Straight into consultancy. Yeah, so you, you when you left the, the, the service, it was... Um, Straight into the other service in the fire service, so to speak, is that correct? Well, what happened? What happened was I'd, I'd I'd been looking at the public and private sectors as as you know which way do you go? Um, and one of the one of the things I looked at, of course, you know, when you leave the military after twenty years, leaving the military, you do in a military mm-hmm. way. So I'd done a, a big kind of appreciation on how should I, which way should I go, and then. Um, one of the processes I wanted to put myself through was a public sector selection process for a a job in the public sector. Now, the fire and rescue service is a public sector role. It's heavily linked to local authority. So there was a, an advert for a, a deputy chief fire officer's role in the north of England. I applied, got through the assessment and development centre, which is, you know, assessment development centre. I'd never heard of those. So let's go and do that. <laughs> got to the final interview and in the final interview I had to kind of fess up and say look I'm probably not going to be able to really carry through and do this uh, it's a longer story than this but the, the guy who was interviewing me one of the guys that was interviewing me from the Her Majesty's Fire and Rescue Inspectorate as they were called then I think he said look the law has changed and it was a legal you know change that made it happen he says the law has changed he said the fire service are looking for people from outside the fire service to come and do leadership roles for all sorts of reasons and um you should think seriously about this so that was quite positive kind of a you know that, that hit me between the eyes and I thought yeah it could be a good thing to do you know i know i'm going from one uniform service to another but the, the problems are way different um and it, it is a it, it's it's a way in and as fate would have it, a job in the part of the world where I was going to settle came up, and um, I got it. So that was that was great. But I did say to the chief executive of the local authority, uh, you know, on on getting the job in Suffolk, I said, Look, I, I don't think I'm going to be in the fire and rescue service for the rest of my life. And he said, Well, you know, don't worry about that right now. Um, think about this as a transition, and. Um, that's what it was, and it was um, it was br- again another brilliant short tenure in a fantastic service with full again of fantastic. How long, how long did you do that? But a really Sorry. good introduction, a really good introduction. I did it for um, well, I was deputy chief for two and a half years, and then I was um, the director for transformation for another two and a half years. Um, 
But to get to know the world of work in a local authority, in local government, um, the way things worked in, in the wider world was a brilliant experience. And, and from there, is that then when you, you took the jump, the leap into um, where you are now? Well, it so happened. It so happened that there was a there was a a big change program happening in the organisation that was about not just that organisation but all the local authorities mm. in the county, and the leadership centre for local government, as it was then, were advising um, on that, and some of the the consultant a consultants group from there were about to form their own organisation, and they they asked me to be part of that organisation um, as a result of working with them for about a year. So to call it headhunting is maybe a bit ambitious, but, you know, um, I got um, invited out into the private sector and that was that. You know, a few years later, I had bought half of the concern that we now call Thrive. Um, and there you go. The rest, the rest is, is history. history, as they say. And to bring this up to modern day and i know we've had a couple of quick chats about this covid must have had a huge effect on what you do see i have from and this is from the, the experience that, that we have had over the last nine months or so we've had to completely change how we do things as everybody mm-hmm. else has so we're no different from in that respect but we have We've got rid of our offices in Edinburgh. Um, we no longer are in location to do work. Um, and we had to be because in the world of consultancy before, with the world that we were working in, people would say, no, you need to be there. I need to, I need to have you at this meeting. And, <clears throat> well, now we can't be there and, um, and we have to do it another way. And we've been working with organizations since um, the pandemic hit us online um, very similar to the way you and I are having a conversation this morning and it's possible to do things it's possible to it's possible to have conversations it's possible to engage with people in a very meaningful way that that really we weren't doing before because we didn't need to and the the, the trouble is and the thing that the thing that I'm seeing happening is that everybody's sitting in this world working online uh, doing what they can waiting for a bell to ring when everything can go back to what they perceive as normal and I don't think that bell's going to ring um, and I don't think I don't think that place that we used to be in called normal exists anymore so we are reconfiguring our business and that just doesn't mean the, the, the physical stuff we're reconfiguring how we think about how we do stuff to match what we think the world is going to be like because we are, I think of this phase right now as a phony war. Yeah. Politicians are saying lots of great things. Um, there is a whole massive scheme out there to help people rightfully survive through this pandemic in terms of the, the financial and economic pressures. But that's not going to last forever. And the problems, the problems that we're building up around uh, the economy, mental health, um, our whole lives, the problems have yet to really start to unfold. So our business, our practice is about how do we start to support people through those challenges. And I think we're going to be doing it like this for a long time to come. I, I, I know 
I mean, what you're doing is is preparing for the future survival of the fittest, really, because a lot of people who've been cocooned and wrapped up and, and supported are just going to find the rug pulled and bang, that'll fall over. Yeah. Uh, the question I was going to ask you, and you kind of said this at the start, was about this is the way we have to do things now. So when you were talking, and, and I always talk about local authorities when it comes to this, because in, in my line of work where, you know, anything up to four flights a week, because clients, particularly local authority, wanted me on site and wanted me to see their 25-metre pool, let's just say. Now, a 25-metre pool in Carrickfergus is the same as a 25-metre pool in Lillehammer in Norway. Um, it's only the little bits that go around it and how people manage it, etc. that's different. But there was this insistence, you know, oh, no, we need you here. Well, I could do it on a Skype call. Have you ever heard of Skype? Oh, we don't do Skype. We're not allowed to do Skype. You know, all that sort of, all those mm. barriers were always put in place to, and, and I'll be honest, I started telling a few wee porky pies, you know, saying things like, well, such and such a local authority is doing it this way on Zoom. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we should gear up for that. How did they do that? And I said, well, they set up a, the ability to do a conference call in this particular blah, 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 blah. And, and slowly you started to break down barriers where, and then people have, have gone, well, we'll have to do it that way. If this is the only way we're going to see these people or, or progress this, we have to we have to engage. And this is the safest way to engage. And never mind the hours, you're, you know, you're, you know, you were that journeyman too, traveling up and down to Scotland. You know, the hours you waste in a car, mm -hmm. um, never mind your CO2 footprint and all that. But th there's a lot of the, mm -hmm. I've got rid of a lot of tire kickers, as I call them. Out of, out of the equation now where the people who were just, you know, I'll, I'll do this just to, to pass muster sort of thing to now you're actually getting good quality, quality work done because you, you've got mm -hmm. rid of the crap. Are you, did you mm -hmm. find that a barrier to start with or, or did you find that of, of assistance to you? Um, it's been, you know, we've had to, we've had to rethink and adjust heavily how we deliver what we deliver. Um, because, Actually, a lot of what we did was about the power of personality and mm -hmm. um, personal presence. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so being there was probably as important to us as it was important to the people that we were with. But but that can't happen anymore. And the, and the world has changed how that has to be done. And it's about how do we start to find new ways of engaging that are as meaningful and can be as productive as those old ways of doing things. And I know you, you mentioned survival of the fittest, and that that is happening. The, the you know the, have a look on LinkedIn at all the people who are doing fantastically well out of this, and so you know LinkedIn LinkedIn is LinkedIn, and, and it's a great platform. But you know, I, I, I really don't need to see any more ten reasons why I get up in the morning and how I'm, why I'm so brilliant. I'm more interested in the people who aren't surviving. Um, and I guess Thrive and Kinworks is about how do we start to look to support people who are who have who have been challenged before this happened and are now in places where the challenges are just exponential because of what's happening. And it's interesting because we we have found a way of doing business that is st is still around social change, and that's what we're interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, social change sounds very grandiose again but it is about how do you start to change people's mindsets around the, the challenges that they're facing in, in the complex pieces of of, of stuff that's happening um, 
I did a, I did, on Monday and Tuesday, I did a series of interviews for a role that we're recruiting to in a project that I'm advising in, in Aberdeen. And that is about how do you stop, how do you stop the, the very high number of young people who are disengaging from education in Aberdeen happening? Because it shouldn't happen. And when it does happen, it places all sorts of other pressures on other parts of the system, homelessness, uh, substance abuse, all those things. And these are young kids who, if it wasn't for, and we've talked about the places we were in our young mm. lives where this sort of thing could have happened to us, could have happened to us as easily as anything. <laughs> How do you stop that happening nowadays in Aberdeen? And anyway, the role that we were uh, we were interviewing for on Monday and Tuesday was for the, the lead for this programme. And it was interesting because we did all the interviews on this means on um, you know video conferencing means um, and we were thinking about all the sorts of difficulties that that would bring it, of course there were the inevitable technical diff- difficulties but we got over them my dog appeared in every interview I think <laughs> the cat walked across somebody's screen you know, that's yeah, the way things yeah. are nowadays now let's take that and yeah. let's run with it but it, w- it was interesting that the successful candidate who was head and shoulders ahead of the competition and um you know, was just mind blowing in her in the way that she uh, delivered herself in the interview. Um, she did the interview from the Lebanon. Bloody hell! She she her picture appeared, and there was an air conditioning unit behind her with two bare walls. And I thought, I recognise that sort of environment. She said, "In half an hour's time, in about thirty minutes, there'll be a power cut, but don't worry, the generator will kick in and, and yep. the lights will go off, but I'll you'll it won't." And I'm thinking, wow, you know. This this is a new. Yeah. This is the. This is how we are able to do things. This is somebody interviewing for a job that she's going to be doing in Aberdeen with a program in Aberdeen, which she's going to move back to. And you know, this is probably too much personal detail, but but she put in a, a you know an interview that was just mind blowing because that's somebody that already knows this is a new world. This is a new way of working. This is possible. Therefore, I'm going to give this a go. And. Um, that's that's the sort of thing. That's the that's the mindset I'm interested in now. How do we find people, and how do we bring people to bear on the challenges that we're facing? Who just get that this is this we can do this. You know, the old way is gone. Let's let's invent a new way. It, it, I I can identify with quite a lot of that. In that, whenever the first lockdown happened, I got really really busy, and. You know, I'd be saying, what were you doing? You know, somebody said, what, what were you doing this morning? I was, oh, I was chatting to these, uh, a, a building company in Israel, you know, or I was talking to the lads in Australia. Yeah. And all of a sudden, this whole epidemic, pandemic has forced us into you know, making that what was abnormal in the past normal. Yeah. Uh, had- I think there's a lot of, a lot of stuff to come out of this, isn't there? A lot of good Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. I've done a, I've done a course with a, a bunch of guys called the H3 Uni who are based up in Findhorn in Scotland and they're actually from another planet but I won't go into that right now but they're, they're interested in, their big interest is global sustainability but that the, the, the methods that they use and the techniques that they use I'm very interested in and we're, we're very interested in for our practice around futuring um, and, and development in terms of how do you create change, how do you create the conditions for change, anyway enough of that I've done a I've done a course with them in the last few months where the the audience that's assembled is global, yeah. And the amount of perspectives that you can get from that, the amount of insight that you can get from other people, 
in their in their various roles in different parts of the world, all just getting together and that things happening is and there would be no chance of that happening in the old world. It just would you know, I'd have been sorry, haven't got time. Yeah. Well you know what? Stop the bus, let's all get off and and, and think differently about it. And I'm I'm convinced that this is a terrible, terrible thing that's happening to the world at the minute and mm. and I don't think it might sound strange, but I don't think I don't think the world that is in front of us in our television screens is focusing enough on the horror because it is horrible. Mm. And my own father, you know, six people in a rainy a rainy day outside Roselawn Crematorium, yeah. that's the best we could do for him. So this is this is yeah. bad and it's touching people's yeah. lives. But there are there are things happening to the way that we are approaching the challenges of the world that are that are changing, and I think let's look for the opportunity in that. Let's look for the opportunities in those in those changes. January, February, January time. I was asked by an architect to come and and visit their office, and I said, "Look, I'm booked up until I can't come to see until early April." And it was, well, no, we need to because we're wanting to build this thing. Well, this is the best thing I can do. I said, "What about a Skype call?" And he laughed at me. He said. <laughs> We don't do Skype. We're architects. We need you in our office. And that's not a generalization of all architects, this 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 particular one. Um and as as when the pandemic shutdown happened on the twenty third of March, um the guy contacted me again and says, Listen, do you do you do you know a thing called Zoom or Teams? And by that stage I was well into it because I, I knew that's what was gonna have to happen. So I had to learn, you know, how to work the platform. And uh we had a meeting on a Friday afternoon at four o'clock with 14 people online all around the country and all the key players. And you know yourself, getting people together on a Friday afternoon rarely happens. If you were at the meeting, you'd be looking at your watches going, what, I might miss my flight. Oh, I'm going to hit the bloody traffic, bloody, bloody, blah, et cetera, et cetera. And it was one of the best meetings I've ever been involved with Mm because nobody was clock watching. Everybody was there that needed to be, which Mm -hmm. never happens in real life. You know, John can't make it. Well, he's key to this. Well, mm. John, he can't. You know, he's whatever. Mm. And and that was the first that really hit me. You know, this is this is this could be good. This could be one of the, the good things. Could be good is a really way. Could yeah. be good is a, yeah, is a good, good way of, of catching it because the patterns that that would that would pull it back to the old way of doing things are already appearing. Mm. We did a Lynn and I did a a series of um, online sessions with the leadership team of a well-known national charity about four months after lockdown began. Mm-hmm. And they, like a lot of the organizations that we're working with at the minute, are subject to a day in front of their laptop, nine to five at least, video meeting after video meeting, where it's all about oh. agenda-driven, Do have you done this, have you done that? One of the bosses that, that that we were dealing with even encouraged them not to put their camera on because he, you know, he didn't want to see them. He just wanted to hear them what, what yeah. they'd done. And all. We, we ran the first session for the um, for this team, and the team had come to us. We've worked with them in the past, um, and they said, "Look, we're we're really struggling to we're really struggling to maintain our effectiveness here. <laughs> can you you know can you help us think differently about how we're?" So we got them together on the first session, and. Um, they all turned up in their in their rooms with their zoom on, and um, you know we thought about it. how do we make this? This has to feel different. This has to be a different place from what they're used to because they do, they do this every day. So we began with a little bit of um, 
mindfulness in terms of you know how are we going to make this different how are we going to make this yeah. feel different for those yeah. people yeah. and how do we how do we create a space for them to have the conversations that they can't have right now yeah, because they the don't you know there is no water cooler there is no <laughs> yeah, coffee machine absolutely. they can't walk yeah. past each other yeah. after a meeting in the corridor and say hey what did you think of this which is where work mm. gets done change happens at the edges that's where it happens so we we created that space now that's what we wanted to do but within 15 minutes they were all in tears to an individual i ran lynn and i did this from different locations i ran down to where lynn was and said they're all crying what are we going to do but no that's okay because we knew there would be we knew that we'd open a can of emotion because they hadn't had the chance to speak to each other in as people And once you get that, once you once you make people realise, you so know what, you're not being people, you're being little yeah. Max Headroom figures in front of a screen saying, I've done this, I've yeah. done that, I haven't done that, I've got to do this. How do you start to talk to each other like to say, do you know what, I feel shit. Yeah. You know, one of my managers is having a really bad time, he's having a bad time with his family. You know, how do you start to have those conversations where it actually really matters? And... That's a big part of what we do. There's a very similar conversation I had with uh, another guy in a leisure organization. I phoned him one day and he said to me, do you know what? It's bloody great to use the phone, isn't it? Because he was doing exactly what you just described. People, full days of agenda-driven video conferencing calls. (laughs) And very much, you know, 9 to 10 is this, 10 to 11 is that, you know, and, and all, which you wouldn't normally do in your real working environment you wouldn't have your day mapped out just to that nth degree Mm. well but but there's there's also a myth in a lot of places in of work there's a myth that work is done by meetings it's not you know what meetings happen because they have to happen meetings happen because they are part of the systemic structures that keep organizations yep. going yeah. and that's not where things happen things happen in somebody sitting down on somebody else's desk and saying do you not think that's a load of bollocks i think it'd be much better if we did that you know th- organizations change because people make the change happen by by talking to each other yep. by thinking together well, and back in the day, yeah, we used to do some of our most productive says, work at four I'm o'clock on a Friday afternoon in the bar. Right you know, mm-hmm. when you when you actually got the CEO in with you and in with the lifeguards and the cleaners and the supervisors, it was just a thing we all did. Now, you know, in later years that got out of hand, but generally speaking, you used to. That's where somebody had the balls or the nerve to say something that wasn't in a, a minuted meeting. You know, you say, "Well, what about doing this?" When I was a commanding officer in Seven Para, the um, the phrase after after you'd been to the sar- the warrant officer and sergeant's mess, which is where that's the backbone of your regiment, the sergeants and the warrant officers, they are the people who have been in the regiment all their life. They know that you know if you slit their arm, they'll bleed the colour of their stable belt. When you've been to a dinner or a lunch or whatever in the sergeant's mess, you'd walk back in and somebody would say, "How's your chest?" Now that meant, are you okay from all the poking that was done on your chest? Because <laughs> you'd get to the people yeah. and they'd say, right, sir, this is the way it is. And they'd poke your chest while they were telling you. And, you know, sometimes you think, I've gone to the science mess, I need body armor sort of thing. But that's how yeah. things changed. That's how things got done. You know what I mean? And it's right, the same so. in, in our walk of life. 
just to sort of start rounding this off now is there you mentioned to me some other bits and bobs you're doing um you know it it's obviously strange now for you not to be traveling it's uh you know you and lynn basically stuck together all the time in the same house and i'm sure there's lots of households around the country doing like that but it, it, what else are you doing apart from your cycling which i just want to throw in at the end it, what else are you doing you know to any other diversification you mentioned to me a tractor well yes <laughs> i having been through all my fair share of midlife crises and uh, all that sort of thing i'm a man who wants a small tractor um Marcy Ferguson, one three five. I defy. I, I defy. <laughs> I remember a debate outside the woodwork room with Rab and McConnell on whether a Ma- yep. Massey Ferguson one three five could actually do a wheelie. I remember that conversation. <laughs> but anyway, anyway. Um, so yeah, we've we've got some plans to to turn some of our garden stroke field into uh, something that would be a business in the future. Lynn's very keen on growing flowers. Um, where did all our flowers come from before Brexit? Ooh, Holland, quite a lot of them. Um, is there an opportunity? And I'm not talking about this in a really entrepreneurial way, but what I'm yeah, saying is, what I'm saying is, we've now got the time to look outside our window and say, what could we? What else could we do? And that might involve a small tractor. For me, that's a win-win situation. Yeah, I was going to say that's the driver. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Getting the tractor. And another thing that reminds me is that. Um, I'm still, you know, I'm still hooked on the lifestyle that I grew up with in the military and that I do, I, I, I need to get out on a bike or I need to get out. I can't run anymore because my hip, yep. my hips are metal. Two hip replacements, yeah. Well, the one and one on the way one. very shortly. Um, they're not, it's not like hip replacements. It's like the Andy Murray job. It's a metal resurfacing and it's all very good, but I don't want to damage it anymore. You know, I did my fair share of marathons and all that sort of thing, but I need to get out and do stuff to make myself feel as if I've done something. Um, and part of it is is out there. It's out in, you know, it's outside. So when you get away from the headphones and the, and the, the Zoom calls, there's something else to do. And there's, yeah. I guess, it's supposed to the stage of life we're in. How do you start to balance the outside with the inside? And that's where we're going with that. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that you either have that replacement or your hips sorted out before well in time before May, because I do hope you manage to make it over. Doesn't hurt me on the bike. <laughs> yeah, that, the bike's a great bit of kit. Well, because yeah, I, I have mentioned to you, we're, we're doing the Wild Atlantic Way, myself and Derek, who I think you now know. Can't through, wait. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, that, that's 1,600 miles. What I didn't actually realize that the, from Conceal all the way up around to the top and back over to the Peace Bridge in Derry, London, Derry, um, is... The 1,600 miles is the longest coastal drive in the world. Can I just just put a check in here to say that I'm not yeah. doing the 1,600 miles? No, no. <laughs> I'm doing a no, leg no. of the 1,600 yeah, leg. miles. We, well, what we've, we've really got, what we're trying to do is get people to do sort of anything from 25 to 100. You know, the 100's the full day. Um, I'm up and for that. We're hoping to make a documentary from it, and we're going to get someone like yourself coming along, and we'll wire it up for sound and camera, and get a story on a bike. You know what could be what could be more fun? Sounds like fun. Sounds like a bit of fun. If I could just request that at the end of our hundred miles, we finish at a wee whitewash a wee pub, pub <laughs> where at six, six o'clock, three fellas come in with a violin and um, some yep. form of harp. And it cr- cracks on from there. I, I think on the sixteen hundred mile journey, there's bound to be a couple of those by the coast, isn't there? Well, that's where I need to finish. It's about selecting your your route very or your leg very carefully. Indeed. No, it's something I'm looking forward to for for many reasons, and and hopefully we'll get the weather. 
And you know what? As I finish off, there's one thing I must tell you about, <clears throat> excuse me, your house and your, your family in Whitehead. Well, actually, two things. One, one of them I always remembered on a Monday morning, you always had the best sandwiches at school. Your mother always gave you the best beef sandwiches or whatever. But the other one, Live Aid 1985. There's the one. That's the one. Every time I see you two playing, I remember your brother, John, giving out the, the, the songs that they didn't play. Well, <laughs> that, that even got a mention in my dad's... Uh, memorial or whatever you want to call it so john really? john was in malaysia so he couldn't be there so a traditional irish family john would yep. john said the words at my mother's um funeral and um he my, i'm sure my dad would have wanted john to say it at, at his but john was yep. unavailable um <laughs> although he was he was witnessing it online so i i said a yep. few words for dad and one of the one of the one of the things i covered was live aid yeah the reason i covered it was we were all out in the back garden yeah it was a roasting hot day. And we were passing around a bucket. Yeah, passing around a bucket. Everybody was contributing. I remember my mother passing my father's barbecued meal into the dining room window because my father that. didn't like barbecues. <laughs> uh, I, I remember that was such an amazing day altogether, you know, and it's just... That wasn't yesterday either, but it's still as fresh in my mind as a lot of the conversation we've had today. Do you know what? If we got the same group of fellas and girls together, we'd do it again with just as much energy. You know, 13th of July. Who'll ever forget that? Exactly. Listen, Richard, Listen, thank you very much for your time today. Well, um, it's been an absolute pleasure. What a great way to spend a Thursday morning. I, I think it's going to be hard to beat. Uh, so look after yourself and obviously I'll be in touch by organising a, a, a window for you for May if you can make it over it would be great to see you and I, I know certainly Derek would enjoy getting some of your, your inner thoughts well believe me and maybe I'll, you can get some, some stuff out of him I won't be just sitting thinking about it I'll be on the bike so I <laughs> hope to be ready brilliant. look forward to that yeah just start punching a few miles in Indeed. it's only one day that's all you have to think about and we're trying to do it in 16 oh must I'm, I'm getting butterflies already mate stop it <laughs> Okay, Robin. All right. Listen, all the best, and we'll talk soon. You take care of yourself. Look after yourself, big man. All the best. Cheers. Bye. Bye. (laughs)